This is Car Expert. It's a new type of AMG. Anyone that's thinking of buying one really needs to adjust their way of thinking. Any manufacturer is going to make plug-in hybrids work for an Australian audience. It's going to be Mitsubishi, but it remains to be seen whether this car does deliver the goods. I came away disappointed, not because it's a bad car, but just it isn't as resolved or as confident as the EV6 and pretty much everything else Kia we've driven recently. Welcome to the Car Expert 100th podcast. My name is Mandy Turner. I'm this week I'm joined by Mike Costello. Hi, Mandy. And hello, Scott Colley. Mandy, I'm raising an invisible bat and celebrating our century. <laughs> I love that you got a cricket reference into this. You're speaking my language. I think I made a quick mention last week that we started this podcast as with the whole company during COVID lockdown. So it has been hard and we we got used to doing the podcast in separate rooms and, and all that sort of stuff, but we're here together tonight in the Car Expert office in Melbourne. So it's actually good to see you guys in the flitter. I can pinch you instead of just looking at you through a laptop. Screen. I just wish you'd stop. <laughs> and, you know, you're not going to self-congratulate, so it falls to us to do so, but none of these 100 episodes could have happened without you, Mandy, because, I mean, none of us are particularly uh, good when it comes to audio production and organisation of things like this. So the credit goes to you for your wonderful job so far, and hopefully it's the first of many hundred Absolutely. Car Expert podcasts. I feel a little bit sick. This is the most earnest the Car Expert podcast has ever been. <laughs> Shut up, you lanky bugger. <laughs> <laughs> um, what cars have you been driving this week, guys? You'll actually find this quite funny, Mandy. I'm driving a Mazda MX-5. Oh, I saw that in the car park, and it's that, uh, that dark grey. Yeah, so it's it? dark grey with black wheels, um, and I, I looked at the spreadsheet this week and thought, do I put myself through that? And then I thought, yeah, actually, I should because <laughs> I really, really love driving the MX-5. Every time I hop in one, it takes about 15 minutes to get in. But once I'm in and driving it, it's just such a fun little car and it makes me happy all the time. <laughs> Is it the um, soft top or the RF? It's the soft top. So it's a one-hand job to get the roof open. You can just throw it back over your shoulder in traffic and it started drizzling and you just drag it up over your head with one hand again. So how do you actually make yourself fit in that? Um, so it depends on the shoes I'm wearing. I'm wearing Converse today and they mean that I don't have to take my shoes off to drive. Um, and otherwise it's just seat all the way back and all the way down. And the MX-5 recently got an update with a telescoping steering wheel, which means I can get it out of the way of my knees. Once I'm in, it's okay. Roof down is preferable for headroom's sake, but it's surprisingly, when you look at the size of the car on the outside, pretty accommodating. I recently did a track event that Mazda put on to celebrate the MX-5. Uh, nominally, it was because of a minor update, but realistically, it was because Mazda's PR team went, oh, crap, we've got nothing new to talk about regarding MX-5. Let's get some of the old ones that we've got in our classic collection, take them out to uh, to, to Haunted Hills Raceway out in the beautiful Gippsland part of Victoria. And um, I did some track time in one. I hadn't for a while. Like Scully, I'm similarly tall, um, not quite two metres like Scott, but I also can't really see out of it or fit in it properly. But, you know, after five minutes of driving, I couldn't give less of a crap because I was just having so much fun. Um, and I think sometimes people don't give that car enough credit. People kind of laugh at the the MX-5 in a way, the hairdresser car, whatever. But there's very few cars that are more entertaining. And, you know, the fact Mazda still makes it is just an amazing thing. It is actually one of those cars. And we talk often on the podcast about cars that are dinosaurs, you know, big V12 or V10 or V8 things that won't be around for that much longer. 
The MX-5 is also a bit of a dinosaur because it is a naturally aspirated rear drive manual convertible and none of those things are popular anymore. But it's a dinosaur that, if Mazda does it right, could keep living for another 10, yeah. 15 years because it's still light and efficient and it's affordable and it is so much fun even in a world where speed is heavily policed. It really does have enduring appeal. And I like that you touched on speed being heavily policed because there is something else I want to flag in this little introduction of ours, because we do like to talk about what's going on in the world before the news section. And there was a rule this week that happened in Europe that entered force. So, so basically the European Union has now mandated that all new cars need to come with some sort of device that alerts the driver if they're exceeding the speed limit in the area they're in, whether it's through GPS data or cameras that pick up the road signs and either slows the car itself or at the very minimum alerts the driver to that fact. So all new cars from now require it and all existing cars that were previously on sale need to have it from July of next year. It's pretty obvious that this will come to Australia at some point once our ADRs are in place and then it's pretty easy to see from there the idea of well let's stop making it a system that warns you that you're speeding and let's start making it a system that actually slows you automatically so you touched on speed regulation before and I couldn't help but bring that up that I think um, we talk sometimes about this brave new world of vehicle to infrastructure and vice versa and this is perhaps the most tangible sign yet that I've seen. I wonder how long it's going to take for people to crack it though. I have no doubt that there are very clever Germans with sitting in basements in Stuttgart stroking their beards at the moment working it out, which is a good thing because I, I absolutely I hate this idea. It I just n- I never think of smart German engineers as having beards, so that's an interesting one. I might be conflating engineers. <laughs> smart British engineers sitting in a German basement. There we go. I see them in a white coat with grey hair and glasses. And just... <laughs> Just a perfectly pristine white sort of space that they're in with one brand new Mercedes E-Class on the floor going, how will we crack this? Hey, Scully, the 2023 Toyota Hilux has got some updates. It sure does. We know that the ute segment is massive in Australia and we know there's a new Ford Ranger coming that promises, on paper at least, to move the game forward. So it's no surprise that Toyota has gone and decided to give the Hilux an update. There are a few spec changes and upgrades that are coming on cars that will arrive locally from the fourth quarter of 2022, but the highlight is an update to the Rogue 4x4 dual cab, which is kind of Toyota's rival to the Ford Ranger Raptor, but doesn't quite go as far. It's developed in Australia, and it's going to get a wider front track, 140 mil, actually, uh, and a ride height increase of about 20 mil. You look at the car in pictures, and even though it is fundamentally the same thing as before, it looks meaner because it's got a wider track at the front and back, and it's got big wheel arch extensions. Um, All of this has been developed by Toyota in Australia. It's got quite a hands-on engineering team that does accessories and actual vehicle development. So just like Ford has its Yuyang's proving ground, Toyota makes a big point of the fact that these are Aussie-oriented You're selling this car a bit short, actually, because there's a few more mechanical changes that are very much worth highlighting, which is it's the first time uh, a Hilux has had a rear anti, or sorry, rear stabilizer bar, I should say, and the company reckons that's about 20% improvement in uh, roll reduction through corners. Um, And it's also put uh, disc brakes at the rear. Now, Toyota sort of sells that as being a big move forward, but 
the subtext, of course, is the fact that Australia's top-selling vehicle still uses drum brakes, which is amazing. Um, but look, disc brakes, even in 2022, are a nice, worthy addition. Um, and this thing, as Scotty said, looks tough as hell. And um, it's not quite going to cut the mustard against the, the Ranger on paper. One disappointment for me also is Toyota hasn't talked about any improvements to the interior touchscreen. It looks like it's still that 8-inch unit that's um, as old as the hills. Not going to compete with the big portrait screen in the Ranger, is it, Scully? It's not, but what Toyota has done is also roll out some new kit that's designed to make the Hilux a little bit more appealing alongside the flashy Ranger. So base models get new black alloy wheels. The SR5 gets kit that really should have been standard for a long time now, like blind spot monitoring and rear cross traffic. And you also get a heated side, sorry, you get a surround view camera, which makes parking a big truck easier in the city. Uh. The Hilux that I'm really looking forward to seeing, and Mike, you've written a story about this, is the Apex Hilux. We don't know what it's going to be called. We've got a bit of an idea about the form yeah. it's going to take, but it's something to sit above the Rogue and the Rugged that will actually take on the Ranger Raptor. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Toyota's killing off the Rugged X. Um, so we know what the new Rogue is going to look like. That's what we were just talking about now. But the Rugged X replacement uh, is no, it doesn't have a name at the moment. All Toyota has said is it plans to launch a new Apex, quote, off-road variant that will replace the Rugged X. Details, including launch timing, will be announced in due course. So they're cryptic buggers like that, but I did a bit of digging today. And so I can confirm that it's going to be made at the Toyota Production Center in Altona in the inner uh, suburb uh, of Melbourne in the inner west. Um, it's the, they come off the ship from Thailand, mostly assembled, and then the final bits are stuck onto them here on a bespoke production line that's been established here. Um, obviously, the things that apply to the road, like the suspension rejigs, will happen, but they'll be more focused towards off-roading rather than on-roading, a la the Walker and Shaw Amaroks or the Navara Warriors that we've seen done in Australia. Obviously, that break update will happen. The outgoing Rugged X had stuff like, you know, steel bull bar, rock rails, bash plates, light bars. You'll expect all of that to carry over as well as the updated brake and suspension packages. I don't think it will get a brand new engine a la the Turbo V6 in the Raptor, but it probably will get an updated version of the 2.8-litre turbo diesel. There's a special edition floating around in markets like South Africa called the Hilux GR, which has a 15-kilowatt and 50-newton-metre up grade to 165 kilowatts and 550 newton meters. I'd be pretty surprised if Toyota didn't add that engine to this version as well. Um, and so at the end of the day, what you're going to have is a Hilux that's closer to that Ranger Raptor. On paper, still not quite the same, but certainly a step up over the old Rugged X. And um, car industry followers may recall the 2017 Toyota Hilux Tonka concept, which is exactly what the name suggests. Go look it up if you haven't heard of it. And um, that's obviously a stretch target. But if you can kind of just dumb that down by 20%, you're probably looking at what Toyota's going to produce. All we are waiting for now is when's it going to launch and how much is it going to cost? The price might be a bit scary. We'll wait and see. <laughs> Thinking of price, Smoko, we have uh, the price and specs for the 2023 Nissan Qashqai. A bit of a price rise, but for a good reason. Yeah, so prices are up between 3300 and 8300 over the old car. But then again, the old car was as old as the hills. And the price of everything has gone up just lately. Um, you may have noticed. <laughs> I know I have. Um, so, look, it's hard to criticise Nissan too much for doing what every other manufacturer on the planet has done. And this new Qashqai, when Nissan says new Qashqai, they really mean it. This is an entirely new car. Still made in the UK like the old one, but it looks completely different. Underneath, it's different. It's got a new 1.3-litre turbo engine that makes more power and torque but uses less fuel than the old model, although it does require premium unleaded. The interior is a massive step up inside, so you've got much bigger 
screen, new infotainment system, um, much cleaner and more elegant design than it had before, and the full suite of active safety. There's going to be four model grades offered, uh, and they are priced kicking off at 33890 before on roads, topping out for the TI at 47390 before on roads. So about a $50,000 car on the road once you uh, pay all your state taxes and things like that. Um, I really want, really want to highlight here um, the standard safety package in all of them. So every single cash kite comes with things like lane departure intervention, active blind spot monitoring, adaptive cruise control, high beam assist, and obviously autonomous emergency braking at junctions for pedestrians and cyclists. So they're all really, really well equipped. You go through from the ST to the ST plus and the STL lines into the TI is where, you know, that's the real highlight package because that adds things like a remote powered tailgate, panoramic glass roof, 12.3 inch TFT digital instrument cluster with a 10.8 inch head up display, which coupled with that center touchscreen gives you about 30 inches of screens in total upgraded Bose audio system, quilted leather. So they're really going for that luxury feel, but even the base model is pretty well equipped. The only thing that could potentially hold back this Qashqai, given how good it looks, is probably gonna be supply. It does come out of the UK. Uh, obviously that adds cost, and it obviously adds length of time to the, to the time that it takes cars to get here. But if Nissan can sort all that out, it's got a really compelling option on its hands. Um, and I think it'll give things like the Mazda CX-30, Kia Seltos, Honda HRV, and the incoming Toyota Corolla Cross some serious competition, um, again, provided they can get enough on the ground. And after a pretty, uh, a bit of a dry spell for Nissan when it comes to new product, the fact they've got the new Qashqai, the brand new X-Trail, the brand new Pathfinder, and of course, the new Z all coming before the end of the year, it's a, um, it's a real sort of sea change for that company in Australia. It's definitely one of those cars that I'm looking forward to seeing because in pictures, it just looks like such a big step forward from the old one. Mm-hmm. It's also one of those cars that I will believe is in Australia when I see it because initially it was meant to be here, I think, late last year from memory and then the middle of this year and now it's the end of this year. We could be talking about this early in 2023 and it may still not be here and I hope that's not the case but Nissan has been battling some pretty tricky supply situations with the car so it it just needs to get onto Australian soil now. Well, it was revealed in, what, 2021 so it's taking its sweet time to get here. I will flag just before I finish also, yes, so February 2021 is when it was revealed, by the way. So that that gives you some indication of about 18 months to get here. Um, There's also going to be an e-power hybrid. It's the first time Nissan has offered this particular technology in Australia. The cash car will be the first recipient. It's not like a Toyota parallel hybrid. It's a series hybrid. So basically... The petrol engine that's on board is only a generator. It solely powers a battery that drives an electric motor, which drives the wheels. So it is a hybrid. Don't believe the marketing guff. It is a hybrid because it uses petrol, but it uses it in a slightly different way in that the engine is never actually connected to the wheels. In terms of fuel economy, it's about the same as a, any other sort of small hybrid SUV like a Toyota CHR, so around the five to five and a half litre every 100k mark. But Nissan promises it has more of an EV driving character because, again, it's always electrically driven at the wheels. That car is going to touch down hopefully by the end of the year. But then, as Scott said, maybe that'll be late 2023 for all we know. We'll believe it when we see it. But good job, Nissan. We've had another SUV with another price rise, though, Scully, the 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander Fev. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be a great day on the podcast when we talk about price cuts, but I don't see it happening anytime <laughs> soon. In the case of the new Outlander, though, the, the higher price does come with a whole lot more tech, more space inside, and more electric range. The Outlander Fev is a bit of a, a pioneer. It was one of the first mainstream plug-in hybrids, and it's got this legion of really loyal fans around Australia who 
love the fact that in more recent ones, you can actually plug appliances into it or plug, run your house off it with the right infrastructure. And in older ones, love the fact that they can drive to and from school or work without ever touching the petrol engine. This new Outlander FEV is $6,600 more expensive at the bottom end than the old one. And at the top end, it's $9,500 more expensive. So it really has taken a, a jump for 2023, but it also now has 80 kilometers of claimed range from its 20 kilowatt hour battery. That's up from 54 kilometers to 84 kilometers, excuse me, on the NEDC cycle. Which means in reality, it'll be about 70. 70 something like that. <laughs> it's always very generous, the NEDC, but that's still an improvement. And in inside, it has all of the tech that's in the wider Outlander range as well. So that means you get a big digital instrument cluster, you get a lot more passenger space and more materials that make this feel a bit more premium than the average Mitsubishi. So price-wise, you're looking at 54590 for the plug-in hybrid base five-seat, up to 68490 for the top-spec seven-seater. Now, where that fits is a little confusing because obviously the plug-in hybrid in this car has more, much more electric capability than a Toyota hybrid. So the fact it's more expensive than a RAV4 hybrid kind of makes sense. On the other hand, it also goes head-to-head with plug-in hybrids ranging from the Ford Escape ST line, which is around the bottom end of the price range, all the way through to the Kia Sorento plug-in hybrid, which is right in line with the top-spec Outlander. So we're actually going to have to drive the car and see how all the systems operate, what its range is like in the real world, and how well it'll hold a family to know whether that price seems like good value or not. But it certainly is quite a big jump over what was a pretty affordable way into the world of properly electrified motoring. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about this because plug-in hybrids, Australians just don't gravitate to them. So Toyota hybrids sell like crazy numbers. Three quarters of RAV4s now are hybrids. 70% of Corollas are now hybrids. Electric cars are on the march up more than 100% this year. Um, obviously, Tesla is the one everybody talks about. But as you'll see in our electric car calendar on carexpert.com.au, there's 40 or 50 new EV models just around the corner. Plug-in hybrids, their sales pale in comparison to either of those other two, two alternate fuel source vehicles. I think Australians just don't quite understand how the technology works. Hey, I've got a petrol engine, but I've also got electric power. Oh, gee, I don't know. This looks like one of the best applications because it's got multiple electric motor all-wheel drive. It's got V2L. It's got a long range. It's made by a manufacturer that's been doing this tech forever. So if any manufacturer is going to make plug-in hybrids work for an Australian audience, it's going to be Mitsubishi. Um, But it remains to be seen whether this car does deliver the goods. Um, okay, we've spoken about this company quite a lot in the past on the Car Expert podcast. Australia's biggest public EV charger, ChargeFox, is changing hands. Yeah, so um, the various state-based motoring clubs, NRMA, RACV, etc., etc., under the aegis of a wholly owned company called the Australian Motoring Services, previously owned about 40% of ChargeFox, which was started by a friend of ours, called Tim Washington, who also runs a company called Jet Charge that does home charges. Um, But now they have taken over 100% ownership of that. Um, And that is Australia's, well, Tesla superchargers are probably a separate thing in terms of public awareness, but the the ChargeFox public DC charger network is certainly the biggest and the best known public charging infrastructure for EVs in Australia. Um, The aim is for that organisation to have 5,000 plugs across the nation by 2025. Obviously, that requires a huge amount of investment, some of which has come from the federal government's arena program, but it also requires an ability to rapidly repair and maintain and keep that growing network of EV charges operational. ChargeFox as a startup obviously felt that it was best to put that into the hands of the motoring clubs that are far bigger organisations, 
the motoring clubs obviously see an upside because they need to diversify their income streams and future-proof themselves as the world of automotive changes. So it seems like a really good match here. The fact that, yeah, one of Australia's key public charging infrastructure providers, which, by the way, buys a lot of its hardware from another Australian company called Tritium, is owned by an enormous company with a heap of money behind it. So it does seem like one of those match made in heaven deals to me. Um, and we know we've had a few issues with the ChargeFox charges reliability before. So the main hope for us is that moving forward, if we go to Euroa and we show up to a 350 kilowatt DC charger, the bloody thing works. <laughs> I think that is the big thing with ChargeFox at the moment. We know the chargers when they're working are fantastic. We know that they're expanding their footprint around Australia, but at the moment it's quite frustrating when you do get to a DC charger to find that all of the plugs are taken or there's four plugs there, there's two cars plugged in, but the other two don't work, for example. I think with the motoring club's names on these and, and more direct member engagement, it's going to be harder to get away with that uh-huh. because RACV members are paying a premium to be an RACV member and likewise the other motoring clubs around the country. I think they expect a level of service that maybe at the moment isn't necessarily being delivered. So fingers crossed that that is the the kick up the butt or maybe the cash injection that the company needs just to lift what is already a pretty solid network to a level where it can also be relied upon around the country. And the other great side of this coin is the cash flow from that alongside a uh, funding round that just closed off for about 30 mil um, is all being pumped into JetCharge, which is the it was the sister company of ChargeFox, same founders. And that company has massive plans in terms of its home charging systems, its infrastructure that goes around that, working with businesses and fleets and local governments to install AC charge wall boxes and the like. They've got more than 100 staff too. So there's a lot more financial security for another small Australian rapidly scaling business that comes as a result of this sale. So yeah, it is one of those ones that looks like uh, everybody kind of comes out of this a winner. But as Scott said, let's just wait and see how the motoring clubs run the network. Indeed. That's an end for this week's car news. Hit carexpert.com.au for more. We've had June's new car sales figures come out this week. How did we do for last month, Moko? I'll give you one guess. Not good. <laughs> um, no, so car sales dipped 9.7% in June on the back of ongoing tight supply. Um, and Australia's car brands say that we'll be stuck in this holding pattern for some time yet, unfortunately. So uh, the June figures checked against registrations and supplied by the car manufacturers through their peak body, the FCAI, was 99,974. So just a scary below 100,000 deliveries for the month. And that's up against just over 110,000 in June of 2021 meaning a decrease of 424 vehicle sales per day. So that doesn't mean the sky is falling in, but certainly means sales are down. Now, the vast majority of those sales, of course, would be actual deliveries because there are waiting lists on so many of Australia's most popular cars. VFAX counts it when it's registered and when there's a plate stuck on it. So these are vehicles that have been delivered to customers. Um, And as I said before, it is very much a supply side issue uh, as as a result of the lack of microprocessors, the conflict in Ukraine, you name it. Um, There were some really, really interesting things that came out of this, though. So take Kia, for example, set its new market share record, uh, 8.5% market share, which if you told any industry follower that three, four years ago, they'd laugh in your face, finished second overall. So Kia not only beat its sister brand Hyundai, but it also beat Mazda, it beat Mitsubishi, it beat Ford and finished second behind all-conquering Toyota. Um, The second most popular vehicle overall was the Hyundai Tucson, 
again, something that has never happened before, mostly because the RAV4 is so supply constrained. And um, the Toyota Hilux, which has been Australia's top selling vehicle consistently for the last few years, recorded its biggest ever month of sales. Um, June is always a huge month for commercials because of end of financial year stuff, but this was the biggest of all time for Hilux. The subtext to that being, of course, that the new Ford Ranger isn't quite here yet. So a lot of people who probably wanted a Ranger couldn't get one. They had to, you know, cash in that tax deduction before June 30 and went and got a Hilux instead. So, guys, hit me up. What have you got for me? Give me some questions. I'm actually curious about the Ute race. We know Toyota's battling with supply. We know there's a new Ranger coming. Is the door open for the Triton or the Navara or the D-Max to come in and steal that crown at some point? <laughs> they are a fair way away, mate. They are a fair, fair way away. Just to give you a bit of context from Jonah alone, the Hilux did 7,500, the Ranger did 2,800, and the D-Max 2,400. Triton just over 2,000. So the Hilux still has a fairly dominant lead. We can't also forget the fact that there are massive supply constraints that the likes of Isuzu, Mitsubishi, uh, and Mazda are battling. And we know that Ford is sold out of ranges until April next year. They've pre-sold, I think, nearly 20,000 of the bloody things already. Based on current supply levels, that's going to mean, you know, Q1, even Q2 next year before you get your cars. So while there may be more interest, I don't think Hilux is going to go anywhere in a hurry. What about the Tesla side of things? We know they're reporting uh, sales to VFACTS now, and they tend to backload deliveries at the end of a quarter. Was June a massive month for them because it was three months' worth of demand all in one hit? You'd think so, wouldn't you? But unfortunately, that pesky lockdown in Shanghai meant that the factory was closed. Mm. So very few cars, I think, and you probably know this off the top of your head given what you've been riding, but nearly 200 were sold for the month. Uh, I think... Give or take. 250 for the quart or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So not many. Um, so the Model 3 is still Australia's most popular EV, but um, did not have a good month, although I do have a hot little rumour that there'll be a boat landing either late this month or early August that should change things. On the topic of EV, Scully, I'm going to throw this one to you. Why don't you tell us a bit about EV sales this year? Because I believe uh, you got your hands on some pretty interesting figures in that regard. You believe correctly, Moko. It's almost as if we spoke about the story today. Um, yeah, so the Model 3 is still comfortably Australia's best-selling electric car. To date in 2022, Tesla has delivered 4,653, which is 4,100-odd more than the next best competitor, which is the Hyundai Kona Electric with 570, followed by the Polestar 2 with 562. Now, that's impressive, that Polestar. More than 200 sales for the month in uh, June too, so it's doing really well. Um, if we bring it back just to the more generic stuff about the sales wrap, as I said before, Toyota was number one, more than 22% market share, which is incredible that it maintains 20% market share month after month after month, even with two-year-long waiting lists on some of its most popular cars like the RAV4 and Land Cruiser. There was even a dealer recently that said, delivery time for 70 series Land Cruiser, four years or never, quote. And yet, still number one brand. Kia second, Hyundai third, Mazda fourth, Mitsubishi fifth, rounding out the top 10, Ford, MG. Although that car, that brand has started to plateau now after several years of rapid growth. It's kind of hit its natural point of attrition and is starting to plateau. That was seventh, Mercedes-Benz eighth, Subaru ninth, and Isuzu Ute rounding out the top 10, meaning Volkswagen missed out on the top 10. Um, GWM, Great War Motor, parent company of Haval, set its all-time sales record for the month as well, finishing 13th and actually beat out Nissan. So uh, wow. with the fact that Nissan's caveat would be lack of supply like everybody else, but I thought that was deeply interesting. If we go down to the model breakdown, Hilux and Tucson 1 and 2, as mentioned, Ford Ranger, 
In run out, new ones yet to arrive, still finished third with 2,800. I'm betting that uh, holding yards around the nation are completely bereft of old ranges at this point. Toyota Corolla fourth, Toyota RAV4 fifth, D-Max sixth, Kia Sportage seventh, Mitsubishi Triton eighth, Hyundai i30 ninth, and the MGHS. First time in the top 10, finished 10th, and actually outsold the Mitsubishi Outlander, which is a pretty amazing achievement from that. GWM Ute, another screaming success with 1,315 sales. Um, If we break it down by state and territory, this is not something that's isolated to one part of the country. Everywhere except for the Northern Territory was down. New South Wales, 7.5%. Victoria, 12.2%. Queensland, 13%. So this is pretty consistent drops across the board. SUVs. 52.5% market share. Um, And then light commercials, 24% market share. So old school passenger cars, they don't have a big chunk of that pie anymore like they used to. Medium SUVs are the driving force there. Um, Private buyers only down 6.8%, whereas business fleets were down 18.7% and rental fleets by 18.3%. So one thing we are seeing as the economy weakens is Forward orders from businesses and rentals are starting to decline, but private sales are still holding up because even if prices are high, people still need transport. They still need to get from A to B. And uh, the final one I mentioned is country of origin. Japan, Thailand, and Korea is number one, two, and three. But China, well and truly ensconced now, is our fourth biggest source of vehicles because of MG, because of LVV because of GWM and uh, as Scully recently wrote exclusively because of Cherry, which is going to come to the market very soon as yet another Chinese startup. So pretty interesting six months to the year. Um, A lot of the manufacturers are going to be begging and screening for more supply. But I think, you know, for all intents and purposes, given the headwinds that are currently being faced, not an entirely terrible result. Mm. How do we usually expect to see July as the financial year? How does that usually yeah, often a bit of a lull because of the it's the it's the chaos, the hangover, the morning after the big party, right? <laughs> but this year is a bit different because June 30 this year it wasn't a result of manufacturers frantically sticking plates on thousands of cars that are on grass mm-hmm. in holding yards to bump up their numbers and get their quarterly bonuses because there ain't that many cars around. So I think the whole nature of the beast is going to change a bit. Um, and July might just be business as usual, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have questions for Moco, put them in the comments section below uh, of the story at carexpert.com.au. Hello, James Wong. Hello, Mandy Turner. Let's have a chat about the future AMG E-Class, which is the 2022 Mercedes AMG EQE 53. Yes, I thought you were sick about me talking about my Europe trip. <laughs> Never. <laughs> so uh, what exactly is this car? So it's this new um, all-electric sedan that comes under that um, Mercedes EQ banner. It's positioned as something of like an E-class size vehicle in that it's a large sedan, but it's got a, being an EQ, it's got a funny design. Um, it's based on the same platform as the EQS, which is essentially a larger version of this, which I think Mike will have more to say on this on that car in a little bit. Um, but the... Basically, that's what it is. And this AMG version is going to be the flagship. Um, the the team from AMG told us at the launch that they're not doing a 63 version of this car. So don't see it as a, an electric E63 successor. Um, but it's um, got it's running some really crazy numbers. And um, we got a, a pretty short but interesting drive of it um, off the back of that C43 launch I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, so through some French mountains and then onto uh, Switzerland's Basel airport. 
So you mentioned numbers. Yes. Shall we get into them? Yes. Yeah, so there's two versions sort of of the EQE 53. The standard one's running about 460 kilowatts and 980 newton meters, something around that. But with the optional AMG Dynamic Plus package, it's doing 505 kilowatts and 1,000 newton meters, which is massive in anyone's numbers. Um, so we anticipate that the optional package uh, in Europe will actually be standard here because AMG typically goes for higher spec models. And if you look at some of the other models in AMG's range, like the A class, the A45 and the C63 and the E63, we just default to the high spec S ones, which have more power. They actually offer standard ones in Europe that we don't get. So I, yeah, we reckon that they're going to bring that package as, um, as standard and it can do zero to 100 in 3.3 seconds and go up um, up to about 240 k's an hour which is pretty bloody quick so it's it's almost running like tesla model s numbers uh it's it's nothing to sneeze at the noise in amg cars is such a key part of the experience beyond the numbers forget how fast it goes to 100 k's an hour how has amg made the eqe sound well, they've they've actively tried to not make it sound like a combustion vehicle, and so they've employed this thing or this feature called the AMG Sound Experience, which makes it sound like you know some virtual concert of of sorts. But it's really just a collection of different sounds that the vehicle will make under acceleration, and also when you lock it, unlock it turn it on, turn it off. Um, it actually frightened me at one point because I got out of it um, along the drive turned it off, locked it, and it made this weird electronic shutdown noise, sort of like when one of the Transformers dies in the movies. And I genuinely (laughs) was shocked because I didn't know where it came from. Um, So they've tried to give it this really electric futuristic sound. So if any of you have ever heard, you know, there's so many different spaceships in like movie history and you can imagine that it's the culmination of sounds along that sort of line so it doesn't really sound like anything and for me personally i wasn't a huge fan of it because like scott said um that the sound experience is has been a really big part of amgs for as long as we all can remember they've got you know really loud blaring six eight twelve cylinder engines that really add to the experience whereas here it just felt a little bit sort of just there and a bit contrived and it wasn't my favorite thing but i can see why they're trying to take a completely different direction because for example if they went and tried to make a like an actual engine sound and it didn't sound great, then people would say they're trying too hard to make it something that's not as well. So I guess they're sort of delivering on what they've set out to do. On the topic of sound, um, one thing that we should take into account is the fact that these cars, because they're ground-up EVs, can handle over-the-air software updates. And it's very easy to see a future in which you can go onto the Mercedes Me store and download a whole suite of different sound effects for your car, a bit like Renault used to do with the Renault Clio Sport in the mid-2000s. Oh, yeah, those were ridiculous, weren't they? Yeah, but <laughs> this could be a modern one. Like You could have independent app developers essentially launching all sorts of sounds. There's no technical reason why you couldn't do that. Um, now, I touched on before the fact this is a ground-up EV. So this is not some combustion car with a bunch of batteries shoved into it. And that opens up so many possibilities for designers to take some real chances. And yet, you know, they're clearly slaves to aerodynamics because this car clearly has been super slippery at the absolute forefront of its priorities. But I think it looks a little bit like one of those wireless Apple Mac mouses from the side. You know, that weird sort of streamline. Yeah, it, it, it... 
I saw the EQS in person for the first time, which is the big brother of the EQE. And while I don't think it's ugly in person, I also don't think it has a lot of presence. I think of big Mercedes-Benz sedans having presence, big grills, big powerful cabriolet proportions. They really kind of, you notice them and thereby notice the occupant. Does the EQE actually have any presence in person? Does the look somehow translate better in the metal than it does in the pictures or does it sort of still look a little bit kind of wishy-washy and aerodynamically focused yeah it was an interesting one because when they did the the reveal um online i was not a fan of how it looked and i for me personally my biggest issue which i don't really have with the eqs is the way that the the rear end abruptly stops on the tailgate so it sort of looks like this weird fastback thingy but it's very very flat and shaped odd in photos but when i saw it in person it definitely looked a lot better and the specs that they had at the launch they had a really nice white one which was the car that i drove that a matte gray one and then this really wonderful blue which um is the hero image on my review on carexpert.com.au and it definitely has it, it stands out and i think because it's so different to anything else on the road at the moment it definitely stands out in its own way whether it's actually got presence is probably more up to different individuals i think that it sort of looks cooler in person the light signatures are really cool um but is it like classically handsome or re- like really striking in a in a really good way i i'm probably not going to say yes <laughs> to that but <laughs> it definitely it, it stands out and um tell us a bit more about on on you know moving into another aspect of the car the interior which appears to be about 97 percent screens yeah um now mercedes-benz has gone mad for screens just like a lot of brands have and they've got rid of physical touch points dials controls and things like that but a does it look amazing b how does it function and you know what are some of the cooler aspects i know mercedes has augmented reality nav and incredible voice control systems and all sorts of cool stuff so can you just tell us a bit about that side of things yeah well the best thing about the interior is that you don't have to look at the outside so that's already a plus (laughs) but but the the interior is genuinely really nicely made um i've complained in several recent Mercedes reviews that some of their core models like the A-Class, C-Class and even the E-Class in some models have sort of taken a step back in terms of material and build quality, at least in my opinion. I'm not sure if everyone has the same thoughts. No, I agree. Yeah, mm, so, so this one is really um, um, a bit of a return to form. Like it definitely felt like a high-end Mercedes product. Everything's covered in um, leatherette or, you know, you've got exposed stitching and soft touch materials and everything just feels really nicely thought out. And then there's that hyperscreen setup, which in the EQE, at least overseas, is optional and you get this massive 17-inch centre screen flanked by 12.3-inch displays ahead of the driver and there's a touchscreen ahead of the passenger as well. Sort of like what you can get on a Porsche Taycan and I think there's a couple of other cars that you can get that stuff in now. But really in terms of what it adds to the user experience, obviously you get a much bigger map display or you know if you're if you're playing things or you're you're firing through settings it's obviously a bit enlarged and more legible um the cars that we drove were optioned with that augmented reality navigation function that um, mercedes does really well and in this second generation of mbux i think it's much better in functionality it shows like a live camera feed of the um the road ahead and the little virtual arrows sort of point you into the lane and highlight the lane that you need to be in and then show arrows when you need to turn and things like that which is a little bit gimmicky but at the same time for, for us especially driving in a foreign country on the other side of the road it actually proves quite helpful because some french intersections are not as um 
can, are not are not that like Australian ones. So, you didn't drive the Champs Elysees, did you? Uh, I don't even know what that is. So, <laughs> so you, you would know. <laughs> so you I'm going to say no. <laughs> but um, so that was helpful. Um, but in terms, of, like even that display in front of the passenger, it's literally just a small copy of the Central Infotainment. So I have a little video of me just like you know touching it and going through the different functions you can you can show a map you can show a charge status meter and you can fiddle around with the um the, like the radio or the the music as well so in terms of like how much functionality it adds i don't think it adds that much it sort of just magnifies everything to an extent but it obviously looks really cool when you step in and the ambient lighting we didn't really we drove it only in the day so we didn't see the ambient lighting but there's a really cool photo that i have in the review of like the entire interior lit up at night and it looks insane so there, there is, there's a lot of wow factor there, and that's something that Mercedes has been doing really well lately. You get really cool screens. You get the, the connected voice assistant that, you know, you say, hey, Mercedes, I'm cold, and, like, it turns up the, the aircon, for example, which some other manufacturers are getting on the same train with. But in terms of, like, real tangible benefits that an owner is going to, you know, get their hands on with, with this kind of stuff, I don't think it really moves the game forward that far in terms of actual functionality. What about the drive? I know it's only a 53, not a full 63, but does it feel like a bit of an electric hooligan and pick up on the character of other AMG cars that, again, we love because of their kind of their character and the feel from behind the wheel? Yeah, it was it was sort of an interesting one. The first part of our drive was sort of like a massive climb up the, the nearby mountain outside of Colmar in France. And when we did this drive, the, the sunny weather that we got for the C43 wasn't replicated with the EQE. It was very wet, very gloomy, and at times the fog was so thick that I could not see more than 10, 15 metres ahead of me. So the, in terms of testing out the, the dynamic capabilities, we weren't really able to test that out, but this is a big 2.5 ton sedan it's not going to defy physics it does have rear axle steering it does have um, air suspension with adjustable damping so you know it can corner flat it, it does have a lot of grip because it's got variable all-wheel drive as well so you know you can corner with confidence and you know you can go quick because it's obviously very powerful but in terms of you know the driver engagement and the overall character of it it's something that i think manufacturers are going to really have to figure out is how to give electric vehicles like proper engaging um character when you're driving it so that's one thing that i think porsche has done really well with the Taycan is that you know it still feels very sharp it doesn't feel as heavy as it is it's still fast it still feels like a porsche whereas it doesn't feel you know there's mercedes badges everywhere but it doesn't necessarily feel like an amg and, and it's stupidly fast in a straight line you know we got into the the overtaking lane on the one of the freeways and just really punched it and went, it was berserk how quickly this thing piled on speed but in terms of like you know does it feel like an amg mm, you know probably not like it, it's a very different it's a, it's a new type of amg and if all their new cars are going to be like this it's i think the anyone that's thinking of buying one or driving one will really need to sort of adjust their way of thinking it's not going to be loud and brash like an like some of the v8 cars um it doesn't really sing like some of the six-cylinder ones because the the e53 and the c43 have those wonderful six-cylinder turbos that have a really trumpety exhaust note to them and this doesn't have that so it's just a really different kind of experience and i think maybe we're just all going to have to train ourselves as especially as motoring journals as well that in future all these performance cars it's not necessarily that they don't have soul, but it's a different kind of soul. See, I disagree with that fundamentally, and I'm conscious of time, but the Porsche Taycan, you touched on it before, that is a car that stirs my soul. That is a car, 
and unlike Scott, I'm not a Porsche fanboy. Um, neither, neither am I. He can respond <laughs> to that in time. But like, I, I genuinely drove that car, and yes, it's obviously heavy as hell because it's an EV, but it does shrink wrap around you. It does corner like a Porsche should. The driving position is great. It's not obsessed with you know nothing but modern tech it actually has a bit of an analog feel to it as well and i really like the way they've balanced those two things and yeah i kind of wonder whether i totally get the eqe as a car from mercedes-benz but whether the amg version should have taken a bit more of a cue from the Taycan and tried to actually add a bit of soul you can mount a pretty strong argument that perhaps they should have mm. I, I think the thing with the Taycan and with the EQE, the Taycan is a little different because it doesn't replace anything in the Porsche lineup. It's mm. its own thing and therefore it can kind of forge a path that's half electric and half classic Porsche and it does that brilliantly well, Porsche fanboy or otherwise. I think with a car like the EQE though, James is right and it needs to actually, if it is going to wear a traditional badge and Mercedes has gone out of its way to say this is a 53, that has meant something before and it means something here. It is an AMG that's meant something before and it means something here. It needs to move the game forward or at least try to acknowledge some of the past that comes with that badge and it doesn't sound like the EQE has quite done that. Yeah. But before we end as well, before we round all this up, I think one thing worth noting is that um, the, the lead developer on the AMG EQE line said to me that the reason they're not bringing a 63 version of the EQE is because they don't believe it's really suited for racetrack use and that in future all of the AMG electric AMG models at least, that have a 63 badge will be designed and honed for track use. So whether the whether the 43 and 53 models have missed the mark on that front, you know, is, is up to interpretation. But I think there's at least something to look forward to yeah. there because if they can really make, you know, like an AMG, AMG GT successor or, you know, even C63, E63 successor that can genuinely be fun on a circuit, then there's still some hope there and perhaps, you know, Porsche does have some a fight on its hands. Which car expert rating did you give it? I gave it an 8.3. All right, that review is live at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, James Wong. Thanks for having me, ladies and gentlemen. Scully, you just got back from the launch of the Kia Nero Hybrid and EV. This is, this is the 2023 one, right, like the updated one? This is the new one, yeah. yeah. So the Nero we get in Australia at the moment or up until now was essentially, I, I want to say runoff almost from Europe, uh, came to Australia very late in that car's life. And the car we get is essentially for Kia Australia to get its dealers up and running on electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles and also to show the world that, yes, we are Kia and we do electric cars. This new one is a slightly different thing. It's built on the same bones as the Hyundai i30 sedan, and it's offered overseas with hybrid electric and plug-in hybrid power. But in Australia, we only get the base hybrid and the full EV. Like we said earlier in news, demand for plug-in hybrids is fairly low, and they sort of do the jacks of all trades and masters of none that Kia is able to bring to Australia if it wants to, but doesn't think demand's there at the moment. Um, on the outside, it looks totally different to the old one. I think it looks fantastic in person, actually. <laughs> that was the question because I think it looks awful in pictures, but often in person, things are very different. So it stacks up in person, eh? It does. The front end in particular looks quite chunky and solid. It's got some odd angles to it. And in the two-tone colors, you can get it with what I actually said to the Kia people was like an Audi R8 side blade. You can have yeah. white with silver or green with gray. I think it looks fantastic. In other colors from other angles, it's not so interesting, but... Compared to the old one, which looked tall and fat on tiny little tires, it's a huge step forward. And I think for the sort of person that wants an electric car or a hybrid, I know that the RAV4 looks normal, but it, it sort of looks normal enough but interesting enough that you're telling the world you're eco-friendly, 
but also not making yourself a weirdo doing it. It's a good blend. So let's start with the hybrid then, because that's where, you know, EVs get all the, the traffic and the talk and that, but hybrids are still the things that actually sell in Australia. Tell us a bit about it. Is it well-priced? Does the hybrid tech work well? Is it a genuine competitor to the ubiquitous Toyotas of the world or is it something a bit different? So I think before we go into the price and the the hybrid system, it's worth talking about the size because this car is technically based on the way the government classifies it, a rival for the likes of the Skoda Kamiq and that sort of thing. But in reality, it's almost RAV4 size. It's sort of halfway between the two. Um, Inside, it doesn't have quite as much space in the back. Outside, it fits in a smaller parking spot, but it is also a much bigger car than you would classify, say, a Skoda Kamiq, a Ford Puma, that sort of thing. So just for the sake of clarity, when we talk pricing, that's kind of the size the car is. The pricing is kind of confusing. For the hybrid, it kicks off at 44380 That's for an S, which gets pretty much nothing. It's got a key barrel start. It's got a urethane steering wheel. And even though it's got a really beautiful wing-shaped dashboard that looks like the EV6, you get a tiny little eight-inch screen in the middle of it. And in the hybrid, you get base sort of analog dials with a little, um, not analog, sorry, calculator-style readouts with um, eight-bit numbers and a little trip computer in the middle. So it's quite a basic thing, but it's actually priced in line with a low to mid-range RAV4. And then the top-spec GT line, which gets absolutely everything, big screens, leather, that sort of thing, is priced at $50,030 before on-road costs, which, again, to use the RAV4 as a marker, is pretty much top-spec RAV4 money. Mm. And that is front-wheel drive only. It's less powerful than a RAV4, and it has less space inside. So on paper, if this was a fair fight where stock of both was plentiful and you could just walk into a dealer and pick... It's kind of hard to see where the Nero fits, but it is worth bearing in mind that Kia is only going to be able to bring 75 of these cars to Australia a month across both EV and hybrid. So the Nero itself is supply constrained. And then the RAV4, we know you're waiting up to 18 months for some variants. So this is such a familiar story. We, fuel prices are through the roof. Mm. All we hear constantly is we need to reduce our household emissions. We all want to do both. And yet every time a car manufacturer launches a fuel-saving model, they bring in such a pitiful amount of them, (laughs) Tesla aside, which to its credit actually seems to have supply. It's extraordinarily frustrating to me that this continues to happen. It is. And the car makers are frustrated as well. But them telling us why, them saying, you know, we don't have emissions targets, demand is high in Korea and Europe, doesn't change the fact that people can't walk into a dealer and buy one. And ultimately... As much as we're happy to report the why, we're here to report also for people who want to buy cars. So I completely agree with you. So what about the electric one then? So the electric is also an interesting thing. Um, Thing being the word because I can't quite wrap my head around how to describe it. (laughs) It kicks off at 65,300 before on-road costs, which after a recent price rise to the Kia EV6 makes it about $6,000 less expensive than a base rear drive air. And the top spec GT line Nero is 72,100, which has it well and truly above the uh, Tesla Model 3 sedan. Well, it's, all, it's pretty much Model Y pricing, isn't it's it? It's essentially Model Y pricing. Now, the base EV is quite similar inside to the hybrid. It's still got the plastic steering wheel. It's still got charcoal cloth seats. It does get a proper digital dash, but it doesn't have a big screen. It kind of, I've written in the review, it feels more sold taxi than show-stopping tech showcase. It really does feel like an economy car that's been dressed up with electric motors, and that's completely fine, but the price of it at 65300 is knocking on the door of some really nice electric cars. It's also around the Ionic 5 price, slightly below, but 
I don't think far enough below to justify how basic it feels inside. The, the GT line is in quite strange territory because it is better equipped than a base EV6 uh, Air. It is also a different proposition to a Model 3 or a Model Y. It's a little bit more conventional and there are people who are going to like the fact that you can buy it from a Kia dealer, get it serviced at a Kia dealer. But it, it does feel a little bit like a little bit like Kia's rocked up to a, a gunfight with a knife. Uh, it just doesn't feel as special as some of the other EVs out there for the same money. And because it's built on a legacy architecture, it can't charge as fast. You can't get a dual motor option. Range is strong, but performance is fine and nothing more. It's it's a bit meh. Mm. It just sort of exists. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting when supply does pick up to see how the market responds to it. I'm keen to hear the how the EV goes. Is it fairly punchy or not? Not really. Um, so on the powertrain front, the hybrid has got a 1.6-litre engine with no turbo, and it's got an electric motor making 32 kilowatts and 170 newton metres mounted to the transmission. So total combined power is 104 kilowatts. Total combined torque is 265 newton metres. It feels a little disjointed in the real world. It goes from electric power to then the electric motor and the engine in a tall gear driving the front wheels. So this is where Toyota's decades of experience yeah. comes into play because it has been, you know, taking the rough edges off its technology for generations now. Yeah, exactly. And so in the Toyota systems, it's a CVT and you put your foot down, you get electric motor, and then it makes some noise, but it smoothly kicks into petrol. In this car, you get the sensation of going from the electric motor to the electric motor and the petrol engine, but... Imagine you're driving a car uphill heavily loaded in sixth gear and it feels like it's struggling a bit. And then finally it kicks down to fourth or third and you get the revs flaring, but it's just a bit jerky from behind the wheel and that process isn't nearly as smooth as it is in a Toyota hybrid. So we're sort of being a bit hard on it. It's not a bad car to drive. It's very efficient. It's smooth and it's quiet at city speeds, but ultimately it lacks the polish of Toyota's system and it's priced in line with the RAV4 pretty much. When it comes to the electric motor, uh, in the electric vehicle, it's got a 64.8 kilowatt hour battery pack. There's a motor on the front that has 150 kilowatts and 255 newton meters. That's actually a whack less torque than the previous car had. Mm. It's the same power output, but 140 newton meters yeah, less. Yeah, the old one, if, if memory serves, the old one torques to you a lot. It couldn't put that power down through its front wheel. So does the new one behave better? Yeah, so this is what Kia said. Performance in the real world between the two is pretty much identical. Same 100k an hour sprint or slightly better for the new car. And in reality, having driven that EV recently, the old one, it was stupid the way that it just wanted to absolutely torch its front tyres anytime you put your foot down. So this car, it doesn't have a Tesla-like shove in the back. It doesn't have... Even what you get from the EV6, which is sort of a, a chest-squeezing acceleration, but it does have instant torque on its side. You put your foot down, there's no gear shift, it just goes. And it is smooth and quiet and comfortable and punchy in the real world. It does all the EV stuff really well. It just doesn't have the headline-grabbing bits that the other ones do. It's so emblematic of the industry at the moment, though, isn't it? Like, on the one hand, props to Kia because the Korean brands are the best outside of Tesla when it comes to introducing electric cars to Australia. Both Hyundai and Kia have got broad ranges of electrified vehicles and they should be commended for that. But then you also look at it and you go, it's a slightly unexciting, slightly expensive crossover that doesn't seem to really have a lot of the USPs that the Teslas and the Polestars of the world does or do, I should say, but is priced similarly. And the Kia EV6, on the other hand, delivers a genuinely exciting future-focused you know, thing for not a whole lot more cash. At least on paper, it seems to me like it's a bit of a hard thing to kind of justify. I think where this car sits, and 
Kia has essentially said as much is that it's here because Kia knows it wants to be selling electric cars and it knows it needs to be selling hybrids. It knows people wants them. It knows as a brand, that's where it's going. This is the form it could get it to Australia in. So this is how it's selling it. I also, to drive, the hybrid is quiet and refined on the highway. It handles really nicely. It feels like a bit of an overgrown sort of Serato almost, the way you can throw it around. And the electric car is heavy and tall, but very quiet. And I found more comfortable than the hybrid. So you very happily drive them both. They're perfectly fine cars, but you're right. The way they're pitched, it just doesn't feel like they do anything that other cars don't already do. And I think that'd be okay if it was the one that Kia could get here in huge numbers. It'd be okay if you go, well, the EV6 is the sexy sports car one, but you can actually buy a Nero. But the way the supply situation stands at the moment, it's essentially just going to be overflow. It's going to be people who want a RAV4 but can't get one, so they go for a hybrid. Or it's people who want an EV6 or an Ionic 5 or a Model Y but don't want to wait, so they go a Nero EV if there's stock of that. It doesn't do much to sell on its own merits. It almost just feels like it's there to pick up the scraps. And I suppose more choice is a good thing and more supply is a good thing across the board. But ultimately, I came away disappointed, not because it's a bad car, but just it isn't as resolved or as confident or as strong of an offering as the EV6 and pretty much everything else here we've driven recently. Do we know what the servicing costs are yet? We do know. So in the EV, the first seven services will cost a combined $1,754. That's pretty cheap, to be honest. And you can actually pay for a prepaid three-year plan for $620, $1,200 for five years, and then that same $1,754 for seven years. The hybrid is really expensive. For seven years, you'll pay $4,010 to service it. If you look at the cost breakdown of servicing the hybrid, every second service is really expensive. And we've actually seen with Hyundai and Kia's 1.6 litre products, they're mm. quite exy to maintain anyway. Even when you take the turbo off and replace it with an electric motor, that's still the case. So again, we know Toyota's good with its really low running costs and cap price services on a RAV4 hybrid and Kia can't match that. I think this is emblematic also, and I keep using that word, but it is, of just how far Kia has come. We just touched on the fact that it's number two in market at the moment. But like five years ago, if Kia launched a new hybrid and electric SUV that was competitive with the best in class, we would have said, oh my God, look how far Kia has come. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kia has already got to that point. And so when it launches a vehicle that just is okay, it almost seems like a disappointment, which kind of says a lot about Kia, I think, that that company has advanced quite as far as it has. I completely agree. And I think that's why a rating below eight, I'm still putting the final numbers in because this review hasn't gone live as we're recording, but is where the Nero will end up. It's a perfectly fine car, but it just just doesn't quite fit in the way that we hoped it would. Number 100 down. Can't believe we're triple figures. Unbelievable. While we're talking cricket, Mandy, this is where you just start again. Helmet back on, reset, another 50. Just grind again. That's it. Just, the, mistake, the mistake you made was starting the cricket banter early in the podcast, at which point people switch off immediately. If you leave it for the end of the podcast, they've already listened to it and you suckers now have to put up with the cricket banter. This is essentially test cricket. <laughs> no one's watching, but the purists love it. <laughs> um, we've got some launches coming up next week, Moko. Yeah, we definitely do. Back up in earnest. Um, by the time you're listening to this, I will have already done, but at the time of recording, this is in the future, um, a, a virtual reveal for the brand new Volkswagen Amarok, which of course is based on the Ford Ranger. Speaking of Ford Ranger, I'm also doing the national launch for that. 
um, next week. So that's probably up there with the biggest launches of the year. That and Model Y are the two biggest launches of the year. There's a very exciting Hyundai event happening over in Korea that the illustrious Anthony Crawford is doing that involves an electric vehicle. It's very aerodynamic. I'll let you guess what that might be. Um, and then coming up, we've also got the Australian brand launch of Cupra, which, Scott, you'll be attending, um, which is a huge deal. Not every day a brand-new brand, let alone one backed by the mighty Volkswagen Group, enters the market. Um, the Audi RS3, new-gen, incredibly delayed vehicle, finally here, being driven at the bend by Mr. James Wong. There's also a Ferrari 296 GTS uh, hoity-toity soiree that I will be attending, and I'm expecting very good canapes and champagne to be provided. Ferrari, if you're listening. <laughs> um, and the lowdown on the garage next week, Scully. So next week, Mandy, we have got a Jeep Grand Cherokee L Summit Reserve. That sounds like a, a brand for something else entirely, the Summit Reserve it, Special Jacket or something. It sounds like a water brand or something. It, like that, it, too, it, it does, from the purest Texan springs. <laughs> um, the Toyota Prado Kakadu with the flat tailgate, so you'll be able to see out the back of it. A Skoda Kodiak style and a Renault Captur RS line in Melbourne. And up You're forgetting this- one car. The Melbourne. Porsche Taycan Cross Turismo that Paul is driving. There we go. Oh. You're just you're just salty because he's claimed it in full rank. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's doing something interesting with that, but I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, so stay tuned. Uh, we've got a Skoda Superb up in Sydney and then a Toyota Yaris Cross and a Polestar 2 long-range dual motor in Brisbane. Good stuff. All right. Uh, if you do have any feedback for us at all, podcast at carexpert.com.au. Anyone can send us a cake. That would be awesome. We forgot to get the cake for today. Uh, Scott Colley and Mike Costello, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, guys.